Tara is going to come up and read to us from the book of James. Uh, that'll be up uh, overhead uh, if you want to read, but um, if you want to stay listening uh, and reading from the book as the sermon is preached later, might be a good idea to try and find that in your pew Bibles now. Good morning, everyone, on this beautiful day. So if you've got one of the Bibles that's got this on the cover, it's on page 855. So James um, chapter 3, verses 13 through to um, 4, chapter 12, uh, verse 12. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Your, you adulterous people... Do not, don't you, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred to God, towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says that without reason, the spirit, that the spirit He causes to live in, in you, in us, envies intensely? But He gives us more grace. That. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you... Who are you to judge your neighbour? Let's come before our Lord now in a time of prayer together. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this time we share. Thank you for your word that guides us in life. 
and we pray that you'd help us to understand it more and have the right heart to put it into action. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, most of you know that uh, Friday Night Youth Group is a, a big part of my week. It has been for some time now. And uh, I have a pretty good time uh, with the teenagers. Uh, they don't mind uh, a few active games before we do our Bible study. And one of the games that we've enjoyed over time is, is called the cat and mouse game. There's two teams. Uh, one person gets to have a go at being the mouse and the other group is the team of, of cats. And uh, the winning team is the one that, where the mouse gets to run around and they try to avoid getting eaten by the cat. They don't really eat them. but <laughs> The team that wins is the one that, that sort of takes the most amount of time to sort of get around the circuit. Now, we call it the, the cat and mouse game, but it could equally be called the beat around the bush game because that's kind of what we do. Getting caught is just a matter of time. It's inevitable. But we try to beat around the bush as long as we can uh, to avoid getting captured. Now, I'm talking to you about beating around the bush because I think it's kind of the opposite to what James, the writer of this book, does. Have you noticed that James is pretty frank? He doesn't beat around the bush, does he? He gets stuck straight into what he knows the church needs to know and understand. He knows what we need to deal with. He does not beat around the bush. He gives the church back then and he gives the church today good words, uh, words that are frank words and ones that uh, we're encouraged to grapple with and feel the weight of and deal with. And so... That's what I've got in my introduction. Don't beat around the bush. Let's get stuck right into it as we look at uh, James's call to godliness. In the first place, he calls us to value God's true wisdom. And in the second place, he calls us to submit ourselves to God. Let's look at the first point there, a call to true wisdom. The topic of wisdom comes up in the uh, book of James in chapter 1, in verse 5. He, he says, if any of you lack wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. And today we return uh, to that theme of wisdom in verse 13. Who is wise? Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you. Now, I'm not sure what answer James is expecting there, uh, but I'm sure there were some readers who thought, well, yeah, yeah, that's me. I'm wise. I'm, un I'm understanding. I'm the, the person that James has got in mind. But then James starts to set out a, a criteria of wisdom that God values, and people are challenged, we're challenged, to, to see if we fit that bill of wisdom in verse 13b we read let them show it let them show their wise and understanding by their good life by deeds done in the humility that come from wisdom biblical wisdom's got less to do with uh, 
mind gymnastics and dealing with sophisticated academic ideas that are sometimes quite convoluted. Biblical wisdom's got more to do with adopting God's values and thinking about how he calls us to conduct ourselves in relationship. That's what biblical wisdom's about. And in verse 13, James makes this link between wisdom and the good life with deeds done in humility. The wise life is the one that's seen by its fruit in how people are conducting themselves, whether they're upholding what God values and how they're, they're carrying on as, as, as part of uh, a group of people or as his people in, in the world. The good life, the wise life, is the one that's shown by wise deeds. Deeds done in humility. Now, this word about humility can be translated to gentleness or meekness, and it's the same word that Jesus uses of himself when he just says he talks about him and what he's like and his ways, what they're like. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Deeds done in gentleness or meekness show the kind of wisdom of heaven, the kind of wisdom that God values. But before we see uh, James fill us in on more what that wisdom looks like in life, we also see the opposite in the next section of worldly wisdom. If you're looking there in your word, you can see it from verse 14. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. It's hard to know why somebody would be um, boasting about having bitter envy or selfish ambition, although I think... I think I have heard some Americans be quite positive and they are quite ambitious. It doesn't seem to characterise Australians as, as much as some countries. They seem to be pretty boastful in some places. Suffice to say that James associates bitter envy and selfish ambition as qualities that, the joke is, they smell of sulphur. You know, they're from the devil. Okay? These aren't good things. And in verse 16, he notes that where you've got these negative traits, there you find disorder and every evil practice. And it seems to me that he's linking Satanism or things coming from the devil. It's not just about the occult, it's about how Satan can get between people and cause disorder, disorder in communities, disorder in the church. And I think we know that this is true, isn't it? Uh, there's a way that uh, groups can be together, that can build each other. And there's a way that groups can be together where people get selfish and hostile with each other and that selfishness can get out of hand. That tears groups apart. Sometimes you, you see it on the sporting field where people pick on each other and don't want to take their turn to go off. You see groups that get torn apart. Uh, God doesn't want our group to be like that one a group that gets selfish and tears itself apart. That's the kind of thing that Satan tends to do. He brings that disorder. 
But a, a better approach is put forward in the next section when we find out about heavenly wisdom in verse 17 to 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Heavenly wisdom is associated with these good qualities that don't, don't tear people apart but bring people together. And James notes of these qualities, first of all, there's purity, which uh, sometimes has connotations of sexual innocence, but here he's probably got in mind the idea of being free from contamination, the contamination of envy and selfish ambition. This is going to be a pure place where there's less of that. And as we work through this long list of good qualities, we can see if each of these things, each of these good qualities was pursued, then it would be a pretty special group to be part of. And uh, this remark about there being a harvest of righteousness sort of leads us to think that there's going to be a harvest even this, in this age of, um, of good deeds, uh, of harmony together, as well as what we can anticipate in the fullness of God's kingdom to come. Now, it's interesting uh, to think about some of these qualities uh, at the moment, peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. All of these good qualities we could think about with respect to a nation at the moment that could be somewhat divided. And, and it's possible for our church to get divided over different things as well. If I started to preach up here about you know, whether to send your kid to a private school or a public school, that would be a quick way to divide the church in one, one quick sermon. I won't be preaching about that today. But uh, in the last 24 hours, it's been pretty clear that we're part of a society that involves uh, citizens making some decisions about our future uh, as a nation. And as citizens, we find ourselves in a space where our vote is compulsory, if you're over 18. Uh, it's compulsory for elections and it's compulsory for referendums. But as we engage with each other over the free choices that we make uh, in our votes, God's word is a good guide for reminding us how we can best do that together. We don't have to agree on everything, but if uh, we disagree, hopefully we can do that very well. And uh, God's word gives us the wisdom. It involves us being peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere with one another today, even in this time of our nation's history, where there's going to be differences. But that's, uh, that's heavenly wisdom, to be able to disagree well with each other, not with a shrill voice, um, accept differences. But the thing that I guess that's probably most important is that we find that we major on what unites us together. And that's, that is the fact that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what brings us together supremely, even in other differences. In summary, from James 3, we see that the wise person gears their life to serving the Lord and conducting themselves with deeds done in gentleness 
and humility. That's the wise person. Secondly, James calls us to godliness that includes submitting ourselves to God. Desires do battle within us, don't they? We see that in verses 1 to 3. What causes, sorry, verses 4, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you kill, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You know, as I... uh, prepared for this sermon finally as I read these words it sort of took me back to the kind of the kindergarten classes I've been seen in the past or crèche groups where one child wants something that another child has got I've seen solid little toddlers there reach out and grab the face of another kid and submit them to get a Tonka truck I've had to peel chubby little fingers off one by one and other kids' chops and then settle the property right disputes over who gets the Tonka truck. Now, I mention this because it's kind of like it's a childish thing that we're seeing here and a level of immature behaviour amongst adults that James is referring to. Fights and quarrels, quarrels and fights. Things are boiling over. They're getting out of hand. It's just awful stuff to be part of. I've seen those YouTube clips of, you know, the musicians and the band where people start to fight with each other and the the punch-up spills over into the congregation. Can you imagine being part of a church like that? Just awful stuff. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. It seems that people's covetous desires are spilling over. Uh, They don't have the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual self-control to to restrain themselves in in that situation that James is talking about. And this covetousness uh, seems to be bound up with with issues associated with money. In verse 3, you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So money's a key part of a problem within that, in that church. And this word for pleasures is actually uh, the Greek word for it is, is our root word here for hedonism. That's the hedonism word, pleasures. And the problem is that people seem to be living for their pleasures as opposed to living for God. And at this point, it's a fairly direct message, isn't it? And, it? and it confronts us. And we're challenged to think about whether we're living for pleasure or where, whether we're living for God too. Whether we're seeking to live our lives for the glory of God in some shape or form or whether we're just seeking to live our lives for pleasure, whether we're hedonists. And I think about this from, some, from time to time as I think about retirement. As you know, I've, I've become middle-aged. I, I turned 50 a couple of weeks ago. 
And I wonder about the retirement age, actually, whether by the time I get to be uh, retired, it's going to be no longer... It's, it's gone from 65, hasn't it, to 67? Is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking by the time I'm getting there, it might be 75. <laughs> and I wonder when I get to retire one day, if, if I live that long, uh, what kind of guy will I be like? Will I just be seeking to live for pleasure? Like, like those people who get out of jail and eat lots of McDonald's and things like that, you know, you finally get to retirement and you can live a little? Well, I hope not. I hope that uh, we keep, well, I can keep, and you can keep God's blessings in perspective. My, may we keep meeting together and uh, encouraging each other to enjoy God's blessings, but to keep God's blessings in proper perspective to keep leaving with God as number one and the blessings he gives us coming after that, seeking to serve the Lord, not just seeking to live for pleasure. There's a good challenge, isn't it? Thinking about keeping things in their right order. Well, in the next section, James sets before us two ways to live in verses four to six. He uses some very careful language. In verse 4, James says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Wow. He's got question marks about their faithfulness to God. And by extension, we're also challenged to have thoughts about our faithfulness to God as well. Would this be appropriate for us to be called adulterous people? Are we, are we faithful to God or not? James points out that ultimately there really are only two ways to live. Let's have a look in verse 4 and 5. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, what does that mean? Christians have long spoken about the risk of becoming worldly and they're probably drawing uh, their, their thoughts from this section here. In the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah at Mount Carmel challenged the people as to who they would serve. He said to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Follow him. And James is making a similar challenge today for us as Christians, isn't he? Who are we allied to? If God is God, let's serve him, or are we going to serve the world? But what exactly is James asking? What is this friendship with the world that he speaks of? What is his point when he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, I want to suggest that uh, we know, don't we? We're well acquainted with what it means to want to be selfish and adopt worldly values and to rebel against God. We're well acquainted with what he's talking about. It's, It's deep within our hearts to want to reject God's kingship and to be have a a self-rule about ourselves you know it and I know it this is the struggle that's in our hearts 
Jesus refers to the weeds that choked the good seed and he says, still others like seed sown among the thorns. We hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So may God help us to keep those weeds in check and to walk not so much with the world, but walk closely with the Lord. In the knowledge that God walks closely with us, he cares for us. That's what we see in the next section. God's given us his spirit to help us, and he's gracious to us. We see that in verse 5 and 6. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely, but he gives us more grace? That is why the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Which I take to mean James is saying that God has a, a godly jealousy for us and he's given us his spirit which helps us to desire him too it seems. There, there is a godly jealousy that can be spoken of. Um, faithful husbands and wives have a godly jealousy for each other. What we're seeing here is there's really two ways to live, isn't there? Uh, James is calling us to live faithfully, to be those who love and serve the Lord and not to walk uh, in worldly ways. In the next section, he challenges, challenges us to submit ourselves to God. Submit ourselves to God and to resist the devil. In view of God's grace towards us, he says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. James is pushing a different barrow to the ways of the world, calls us to recognise our place as God's creatures, to recognise the kingship of God over this world, to recognise the kingship of Jesus as Lord of all, Lord and Saviour. And submitting ourselves to God involves remembering our place, depending on God for our life and health and every good, coming to our Lord God in a time of prayer. And we're challenged to be among those who resist the devil and his schemes. A Christian worldview is one where we, we don't accept that the world's just made of matter and gases, things that we can see and touch and perhaps smell. We believe in a supernatural realm. The Bible affirms that there are angels and demons. There were miracles. There is God and there is the devil. And here we're reminded that although the devil's real, we're also told that we can resist the devil. Satan's only got limited power and our responsibility is to orient ourselves to serving the Lord and not getting embroiled in the temptations of the devil. It is, it is possible to, to let ourselves get a bit caught up in temptations, isn't it? But we're, we're called to orient ourselves to this kind of meeting where we're rethinking life and thinking about God's word that transforms our hearts and minds so that we do serve the Lord and don't get embroiled in the temptations of the devil. Well, in the next few verses, James starts to spell out some of what submitting to God also involves. And it... The first point there is it's about drawing near to God. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. In the history of Israel, those who drew near to the God were the priests, typically uh, coming to draw near in their temple service. We see that in Hebrews 10. The writer speaks about those who were making sacrifices as drawing near to worship. But he makes the point in uh, chapter 10, 22, that this is also true of Christians, that they can draw near to God. He says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. James puts his finger on an important point, doesn't he? Although as Christians we're part of God's family, although as Christians we, we are near to God already through Christ, yet in this age before God's kingdom comes all together and all fully, we can be rebellious. We can avoid God. We can forget to come near to God in prayer and pray about the things that are important, uh, both for our church, our world, and our own lives. James is very practical, isn't he? He, he identifies this issue about needing to draw near to God and challenges us to make some changes to pursue God and to take more seriously our responsibility, not just to let go and let God, but to draw near to God. It's very active. Furthermore, in submitting to God, we're challenged to have a changed attitude there in verses 8 and 9. James challenges God's people to make some changes in life. Verse 8, wash your hands, you sinners, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. Regarding this idea about washing your hands, it's, it seems to be that James is drawing upon some teaching in Isaiah which says, Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Washing our hands is sort of, it's kind of got the connotations of becoming clean and then seeking to uh, live a more godly life. God's people are not encouraged or rewarded to indulge in sin but to avoid sin and wickedness and walk closely with the Lord. And the word about being double-minded is uh, not having a split loyalty in service, double-mindedness is a split loyalty, but we're called to serve, serve the Lord God instead. And it, this uh, language about changing uh, and, and stop having laughter and joy, it's, it's kind of in the context of people repenting from things uh, which are problems. Laughter can be sinister, can't it? Laughing at people's misfortunes can can be a mocking kind of a laughter. As a, as a younger man, when I went uh, skiing, I found myself uh, coming off down a ski run and some other skiers were going overhead on, uh, on in the little cabooses that they're in. What do you call that? The, chair, the chairlift? Yeah, the chairlift. And these cheeky skiers above me started laughing at me and then they started banging their boots together and dropping snow on my head. And they laughed and made... They, they laughed <laughs> They, uh, they laughed and made some smart remarks to me that were quite memorable. I couldn't repeat those remarks to you. Well, I didn't see the funny side of it because that laughter was at my expense. Has anyone laughed at you when you were down? 
it's not much fun. And so when people laugh and tease others, well, James saying, well, that's, that's got to change. Likewise, joy can grow out of wrong motives too, can't it? The telemarketer who cons some poor old person into a scam and takes their money, well, they could be joyful about that because they're making money, but it's at somebody else's expense. And so even these emotions that James is talking about, there can be bad motives and we've got to look at our motives to see whether they're godly or not and whether we need to make changes, things that we need to repent of. That's what he's engaging with. And finally, godliness includes loving our neighbour. We see that in verses 11 and 12, where James continues to highlight the importance of people and how they ought to be treated. James notes that it's our Christian responsibility to tame our tongues when it comes to speaking about other people. In verse 11, brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbour? The law described how God's people were to live under the old covenant. And Christians can take something from the spirit of God's law as well as to how we should be living and we see Jesus does exactly that in the Sermon on the Mount. He takes the essence of the law and challenges his people to obey the spirit of that law. Jesus summed up the law by saying that the greatest commandments were to love God and to lo- love one's neighbour as the summary of its main teaching. James acknowledges that God's the one who gives the law and failed to love one's neighbour by slandering and speaking against a fellow Christian, or by judging a neighbour, amounts to standing in judgment of the law and rejecting God who gives the law. Now, it can be very easy to fall into a trap, can't it, of speaking against a fellow Christian. It's very easy to do, isn't it? When somebody comes to us having had a difficult experience with with a fellow Christian we find ourselves on the horns of a dilemma. There can be a bit of a balancing act. On the one hand, we want to be a shoulder to cry on. We want to be the godly, kind people that show empathy and feel with that person. We want to sympathise with them in their plight of experiencing some hardship. And we want to care for that person who's offloading to us. They're sharing the burden. And yet the the tricky thing there is whether we take the next step and whether we're going to slander and judge the person they're coming to talk to us about. And James is calling us to stop short of taking that next step. Now, it's been a long sermon, but I'm going to wrap up with the mother-in-law problem here. (laughs) This could be a case of the classic mother-in-law problem. If I go and complain to my mother about Joanne, who's holidaying in Norfolk Island at the moment, if I complain to my mother about Joanne giving me a bad haircut, my mother could fall into the trap of siding with me against Joanne. And she could be tempted 
to speak poorly against poor, lovely Joe. Oh, she's a wicked woman, Peter, doing that to you. She, she could side with me about the bad haircut. But Mum's wiser than that. She doesn't take the bait. Instead, she realises the risk of empathising and sympathising too much with me. Instead, she says, oh, go on, Peter. You're very blessed that she'll even give you a haircut. <laughs> and she sides with Joe. She won't hear a bad word against Joanne or haircuts or otherwise. But I, I raise that as a humorous illustration to say that this is the tricky thing. When somebody comes to us, on the one hand, we've got to work at sharing a burden, but on the other hand, the challenge is not to take the next step and to slander and judge the other person. James notes that it's our Christian responsibility to tame our tongues when speaking about other people. Well, in conclusion, unlike the cat and mouse game we play at youth group where we, we beat around the bush quite a lot, uh, we've seen today from the word of God that James does not do that. He gets stuck in, doesn't he? He does not beat around the bush with his call to godliness. He offers us a very direct and very practical message to value God's true wisdom as we conduct ourselves with one another where to be wise and in our challenge to submit ourselves to God and not to be people who are worldly. We're to pursue friendship with God rather than friendship with the world. Let's come before the Lord in time of prayer. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this word from James. Uh, we pray that you'd help us to be among those who do uh, take on your wisdom. Help us to think about what it means to uh, value your values and to conduct ourselves the way you want us to in your church and in the world. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be among those who do submit ourselves to you to resist the devil and instead of um, being friends with the world, to walk closely with you. And we pray for your help to do that. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.